so I come honestly to learn from my fathers and from all of you and from your wonderful questions and the discussions that we have. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of a dangerous thing to speak about uh, the spiritual life um, because the spiritual life is not something that we can put into easy formulas. It's not simply reciting certain, um, you know, formulaic uh, expressions of doctrine or dogma, but the spiritual life is an experience. And it's an experience that is rooted in a very personal um, expression of everybody's unique soul and their relationship with God. And um, one of the um, spiritual mothers uh, that wrote a book on the spiritual life, she said, you know, there's uh, a mystery is, is not like a problem that needs to be solved. A mystery is something to be lived. Um, a problem is something to be solved, but a mystery is something to be lived. Um, and um, actually, just read to you uh, sort of what she said because it's very beautiful as a sort of an introduction to everything that we're going to be talking about. Um, she said, I remember in a retreat which the, the distinction was made between a problem and a mystery. A problem must be solved, a mystery must be lived. A problem can engender frustration, a mystery can engender fascination. Right, so sometimes we get frustrated in the spiritual life because we think of it as a problem that needs to be solved. But what she's saying here is that, in fact, the spiritual life is a mystery that should be lived, and it should, it should um, bring a sense of fascination, because each of us is on a journey. And that journey sometimes means going forward and sometimes going backwards. But in God's eyes, even the backwards movements are a forward progression. Because as we'll see throughout our talks, the, 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 the movement backwards is often uh, a, a time of greater humility and self-knowledge and greater repentance and purification that's taking place. Um, so I'm going to read to you the quote, or the, sorry, the verse that uh, the quote was taken from for the title of our, our, our theme, The Hidden Person of the Heart. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 3 and 4 is the whole um, the, um, selection, the two verses. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. He says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on the fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So I took that phrase from these two verses, the hidden person of the heart, and all of our talks will be about this theme of the, the hidden interior life. And while St. Peter seems to imply that he's comparing the, the spiritual life to the external sort of formal ways that we adorn ourselves, our, our clothing, our hair, and so on. But in fact, he could also be contrasting... Thank you so much. Let me just put it here. He could also be contrasting the sort of the emphasis on exter external forms of piety as opposed to the hidden interior life of each person. Because one of the um, sort of the, the struggles that we find in the spiritual life is sort of the external expre expressions in our Orthodox faith, which is so rich. You know, we have the, the sacraments and we have rites and rituals and we have liturgical expressions and we have, you know, all of these means by which we can outwardly perform uh, a life of piety. Um, and sometimes we can mistake in all of those external forms of piety for a real journey inward. Um, so I'm going to read to you again another quote, again, just by way of introduction. The, um, the, the, the nun that I'm quoting from, her name is Sister uh, Jean Marie Howe, and she wrote a book called The Secret of the Heart. 
It's a beautiful book, so I might make some recommendations throughout the weekend. Um, she says, the further you go within yourself, the sweeter becomes the path. The further you go within yourself, the sweeter becomes the path. So that's our journey together this weekend. Together, you and I will we'll try to make a journey inward. We'll see what that inward journey looks like. And, um, and so tonight, we'll be really setting an important sort of tone for the rest of the, the retreat about words like hiddenness, heart, um, solitude, and, and, and these kinds of expressions that we find in the spiritual masters that are so important to understanding, again, the, the genuine interior life that we're all called to. So the, the first thing I want to maybe focus some, some time on is this idea of hiddenness, to be a hidden person. We can think, of course, of, that everything that we talk about is modeled on the example of our Lord himself. Right? He is the, the author and finisher of our race, as the book of Hebrews says. He is the exemplar of a sanctified, perfect man, in addition, of course, to being the revelation of God himself. And so in him, we find all of the attributes that are necessary for our spiritual life. And one of the unique attributes of the Lord Christ in his incarnation is that he lived a very hidden life. Now, we might emphasize his public life because in the Gospels, we, we tend to, to, of course, jump right into his public ministry. But when we think about the hiddenness of God over thousands of years, as he prepared his people for his ultimate revelation, the incarnation, right? That, that after thousands of years of preparation, our Lord becomes incarnate. Now you would think that after all of that time that he would immediately begin his work. But instead, we find that he's born as, a, as, a, as an infant like, like any other human person, right? And he's sort of hidden for 30 years in Nazareth. We really don't have uh, almost any information except for the Gospels tell us very you know, few glimpses of information about this life. But imagine, again, a God who waits thousands of years in order to accomplish his salvific work for his people. And yet when he comes finally into the world, he's sort of hidden away for 30 years. And, and many of the spiritual masters, again, will tell us that there's something really important in those 30 years, which is the silence of those 30 years. The silence of a hidden life, a quiet life, of an, an everyday, you know, life in the world, um, hidden away in our workplaces and in our families, and that this is the beginning of sort of the, the model of, of humility of our Lord, is that he chooses this hidden, lowly way of entering into humanity. Um, and so he teaches us right from the beginning that you know, the spiritual life begins by sort of running away from vanity, running away from all that is great and, and you know, that, that has appearances that, that exalt our egos, but that the true spiritual life is one that seeks always to sort of never be seen. Now, God will at times call us, as we'll see later in the talk tonight, calls us into the world in order to participate with him by his invitation in his redemptive works in the world. But ultimately, our goal is to seek a hidden life, right? And we, we praised the great saint, the VI, in which he himself said that he wished that he lived a life in which he was hidden from, from everyone in the world. He wished that he went through, the, through his life unnoticed by everybody. And we see that it is this hidden life in which makes one 
available and and prepared and act, you know to to be able to actually serve in the world and we see it again beautifully in in the life of saint mary right this hiddenness this quiet peaceful um life of solitude and silence in which very little is is shown you know if we were to look at a resume for saint mary there wouldn't be of course other than the, her giving birth to emmanuel but but what did she in her life what kind of you know sort of loud expressions of service do we see very little and so it's sort of these daily um realities of being in the world but but hidden within again within ourselves within our families within our workplaces within our schools in which the spiritual life really takes shape and 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 has the the, the possibility of producing great fruit um, so there's this great culture of hiddenness we can say within the the person of christ right saint paul says for you died this is in colossians 3 3 for you died and your life is now hidden with christ in god right so we can think of two aspects of the the hidden life of christ right we have sort of this this hiddenness of his divinity right sort of you know the the saints will tell us the fathers will tell us that sort of his humanity hides his divinity right and even in the eucharist they would say the the, the eucharist hides his humanity even right? so think about that those levels of hiddenness right the humanity hides his divinity and even in the eucharist we see his humanity is even hidden so it's as if god is seeking more and more to show us the importance of this hiddenness and and how out of this hiddenness is revealed greatness and and and, and beauty and so the, the hiddenness of the divinity of Christ in public, right? We, we know in the great hymn of Philippians 2 that he took the form of a slave, right? Even unto the cross. But we also can think of the hiddenness of Christ in terms of this unique and, and sort of mysterious relationship that he has within the life of the Trinity, Right? Especially when you read the Gospel of St. John, I think St. John's Gospel, as compared to the other three Gospels, which we call the Synoptic Gospels, really, really sort of tries to give us a, a sort of a window. Like we peer a little, just a little bit. We just, the, the window's open just a tiny bit for us to peer into this unique relationship between Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Right? We see Him in deep prayer, um, especially in the high priestly prayer and, and, the, and the Gospel of St. John. Um, and, and, and throughout even the Synoptic Gospels when we hear about Jesus sort of withdrawing into solitude he goes up into the mountain to pray he goes into the desert and what's he doing there? he's, he's, he's alone with the Father right? and so even the, the disciples they want to know more about this relationship right? so they see the Lord Jesus Christ praying and they say there's something different we all are Jews Right? We all are Jews. We all, we all grew up praying the Psalms, the same Psalms Jesus is praying the Psalms. We all are uh, worshiping in the, at the temple and, and praying in the synagogues. But there's something hidden about the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and our Father in heaven. And so they see him praying and they come to him and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. Not just teach us how to pray generically, because they know how to pray. They know the Psalms. They know, they know again, the temple worship. They know uh, the, the readings of the synagogue. But it's in that unique sort of hiddenness in which Christ says, when you pray, say, Our Father. Right? So as if 
the, the hiddenness of his relationship with the Father becomes now open for all of us with him to call God our Father. Right? And St. Paul will expand on this in Romans, especially talking about how now we, we call upon him as Abba Father. Right? That, that uh, expression of, of intimacy and familiarity. So we can see the hiddenness in his public life, and we see the hiddenness even within his eternal relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Right? And as I said again, we see this beautifully lived out in St. Mary and St. Joseph, who is one of the, I think we say is one of the most forgotten saints in our church, in terms of how much really we should be giving him more um, reverence and, and, and expression in our services, because he is, again, par excellence, sort of the, the saint of hiddenness. Right? He's the guardian of the incarnation, and, and he, he is this very beautiful expression of, of hiddenness and solitude. And so in the same way, then, we can say that our life consists also in imitating Christ, in hiding ourselves from others. In other words, as Christ sort of, his divinity was not on display, but only for those who, were, who had eyes to see and ears to hear. Right? And in the same way, our life should be sort of hidden from, from the public, from, from all that is seeking, again, glory and uh, power and authority. Um, and then, again, sort of this hiddenness in our, in our you know, what, what the Lord talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Go into your room in the secret place, the secret place, and shut the door, right? And what only matters is what your Father sees in that secret place. So... Um, so this is the, the sort of this idea of hiddenness, the hidden person of the heart that St. Peter talks about. Um, so we can say even that God only sees that which is hidden. It's sort of a paradox, right? I mean, there's so many things in our faith, which is a paradox. And that's what's beautiful about Christianity is that it's, you know, we talk about this paradox of life and death and glory and suffering. Well, in the same way, we can say that actually the only thing that is seen by God is that which we hide, that which is hidden. Right. There's a, a wonderful series of commentary on the Gospel of St. Matthew. It's four volumes, thick volumes. Um, his, his last name is, it's, it's sort of an interesting last name, it's Leva slash Maricacus. Uh, his first name is, is Erasmus. And it's called Fire of Mercy. It's, a, it's a, a amazing, it's, it's, not, it's not a commentary in the traditional sense of like just explaining, but it's like you're praying with the scriptures. So if you're looking for something to sort of pray the scriptures with, uh, it's a wonderful series, Fire of Mercy. And in, in one of his um, uh, volumes, he says this, he says, one of God's chief attributes is the one who sees in secret the one who sees in the hidden places. In a way, we could say that God only sees in hidden places, that consequently the actions and attitudes of hypocrites in public places are not seen by God because they are not real. Hiddenness is here a crucial criterion for genuineness, for reality, for being in fact. How horrible not to be seen by God, to live in such a way that our lives are more fleeting ghosts before Him. So in a sense, Everything that presents itself for public display, everything that seeks to be seen and known by others, is in fact something that sort of blinds God to see himself. And therefore we sort of, we could, the possibility of living our life unseen by God, if you will, which is a very scary thought. And so that, that desire for hiddenness, that desire for going within ourselves, that journey inward, 
is the only way for God to actually see us, to, 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 to recognize us and to have a relationship with us. And so it's this that I think the scriptures and the saints talk about when they speak about the heart. Right? There's sometimes we want to have a very defined sort of anthropology, uh, human anthropology, when we speak about terms like what exactly is the heart, what exactly is the spirit, what exactly is the mind, what exactly is the soul. But usually when the, when the scriptures speak of the heart, they're talking about that inner reality of, 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 of the person who is in a relationship with God and where that encounter takes place. Right? So Abba Pambo, one of the great desert fathers of the 4th century, he said, if you have a heart, you can be saved. If you have a heart, you can be saved. In other words, if you have that reality of, of, a, of a center of being in which you can have a relationship with God, in which you can enter into communion with God, then this is where salvation takes place. So in a sense, we could say that when Jesus, for example, meets the Samaritan woman, what does he do? He awakens in her something within her heart. Like he does that with everybody with the Samaritan woman, with Zacchaeus, with all of the great beautiful stories in the Gospels, is that somehow he activates the heart. He somehow goes into a, a heart that has sort of been deactivated or been dead or been cold by sin, and he opens it to the reality of his presence. Right? Which is, then he says, that, and then from this active heart, to this activation of this heart, comes what rivers of, of flowing water, living water. So the activation of the heart, the, 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 the enlargement of the heart, some uh, St. Paul will say, all of these are expressions to speak about, again, sort of the, 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 the heart being the, the locus, the locus of, of the reality of the relationship with God. And this is exactly what Sister, again, in that same book, Secret of the Heart, Sister Jean Marie House says, she says, the heart is the locus, it's the place of the spiritual life. The motor that powers our spiritual quest. The journey home is a journey to the heart. When we return to the heart, we return to God. We return to paradise by, by an interior path. Spiritual life is essentially a process of awakening the dormant heart, liberating the life within and following its lead. It all seems so simple, so straightforward, so natural. Spiritual life should flow naturally because it is just like that, a life, a vital force within us waiting to be tapped, to become a well of living water springing up into eternal life. Right? So another uh, Romanian saint, he said, the longest journey for man is the journey from the mind to the heart. This is the whole, the whole of the spiritual life in a sense, is this journey towards the heart. We, we can speak of it as, again, she talks about it here as um, uh, the, the motor that powers our spiritual quest. She speaks of a return to our, the paradise within, the awakening of a dormant heart. Uh, we could speak a bit of it in terms of like spiritual awakening. Um, some people would even use expressions like a greater spiritual consciousness. Right? And here, consciousness doesn't mean sort of just like, but like in the sense of being more awake, more vigilant to the presence of God. Right? We can think of that there are different levels of consciousness, right? Somebody who is obviously under anesthesia has a very low level of consciousness. Somebody who is in sleep, sleeping and in, in a dream 
is, is conscious, right, within the dream, but it's a sort of, again, a, a different level of consciousness. When somebody is first awakened from sleep, they're in another level of consciousness. So we see even at the human level, we experience, even in a, one day, we might experience sort of this idea of like a diff, different sense of, 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 of consciousness. But when God activates the heart, right, then, then the spiritual consciousness, that awareness, that, that uh, reality is born within us, which then we begin really a genuine life of faith, hope, and love. Because now we enter into a completely new reality that sees the world differently, which isn't this a, a higher level of consciousness? I mean, when we look at the world just through earthly eyes, through a materialistic way, this is just one level of consciousness. But when we look at the world from the perspective of heaven, if we were to see the world from God's vision, isn't this a completely, infinitely greater level of consciousness? So this is another way to, th to think about sort of the spiritual awakening, right? It's, again, sort of coming out of the anesthesia of a materialistic mindset. Um, and this is really what faith is all about. Faith is... is um, there's a, a wonderful, um, another uh, nun that, uh, if you've heard any of my talks before, I've quoted her many times. Her name is Sister Ruth Burroughs. She actually just died this last week uh, at the age of 100. Um, a real master of the spiritual life in, in what in the West is called the Carmelite tradition. I think Abuna is familiar with the Carmelite tradition. Um, so if, if you are interested, there's a wonderful book about faith that she, that she wrote. It's a small book, but it's, it's not, don't be deceived by the size of it. It'll take a lifetime to really enter into its depths. It's called To Believe in Jesus. And she talks about faith. Faith is really basically seeing reality through the eyes of Jesus. Right? That's why um, with faith, we understand how all of the questions are answered, even all of the evil and suffering in the world. When it's seen through the eyes of the Lord Jesus, everything is perfect, everything is good, everything is understood. And so faith is sort of this, going into these higher degrees of seeing through the eyes of the Lord Jesus himself. And there's a nice story again with St. Serapio in the, um, in the early, among the early desert fathers. He once visited a woman who was a solitary, a recluse in Rome. And she was living in a small room uh, and she never went out. So he asked her, what are you doing just sitting here? And her answer was, I'm not sitting, I'm on a journey. I'm on a journey. Right? So this journey again is not something that is visible through great um, outward works, but it's the journey within. So one could be alone sitting in the room and making this great journey. I mean, in a sense, if you think about even the monastic life, the monastic life is, um, is very much a, a copy-paste from um, if you have 200 monks or nuns in a monastery, aren't they all doing the same thing? Aren't they all waking up at the same time, doing the same services, eating at the same time, fasting in the same seasons, doing the same, for the most part, the same sort of routine? But what's the difference? The difference is the journey that each one of them makes within. And that might be the, the difference between which one becomes a saint and which one doesn't. So it's not, again, just the routine. It's not just the externals. It's, it's that inward transformation. So again, Sister uh, Marie, Jean Marie Howe says, In essence, it is the awakening and growth of our inane capacity for God 
mediated through an immersion in the mystery of Christ, facilitated by an assimilation of the Word of God and leading to a transformation of being. To be a Christian is to be a traveler, to be on a journey. And so, again, um, the heart then is the center. It's the, the place where we, we begin and end the journey. Sister Jean Marie Howe again says, The heart is presented as the center of the person, the place of intimate dialogue with oneself, as well as the place where one opens oneself or closes oneself to the dialogue with God. The heart is the very source of our conscious, intelligent, and free personality. It is the place of our decisive choices of the unwritten law, of the mysterious action of God. It is the privileged place of encounter with God, an encounter which was fully actualized in the human heart of Jesus Christ. All of salvation history can be approached from the perspective of the heart. The human heart was created in the image of God. Through sin, the original integrity of the heart was compromised by turning away from its one true desire and seeking fulfillment in an array of idols. The paradigmatic journey of Israel from slavery to liberty is to be understood not only as a journey to the promised land, but more importantly and profoundly as an interior journey toward the promise of a new heart. Incarnation is the fulfillment of this promise, the restoration in and through Christ of the image of God, which we are, with the concomitant hope of the divinization of the human heart. The fulfillment is the eternal design of God. Very sort of profound, deep understanding of the Christian life. So we, we then want to live in the depths of this expression or this, this being of the heart. Um, Every day should be really for us uh, an opportunity to discover, awaken, and tap into the, the possibilities that exist within us. There's um, a wonderful um, uh, experience that happened under communism um, in places like Romania and Russia and other places in which so many Christians were, were not only killed but were imprisoned. And then oftentimes, um, for example, in Romania, there was a famous, the Gulag of Pitest, and it was known to be sort of a re-education camp, right? The goal was not to just kill them, the goal was to take them and re-educate them by taking a Christian who believed in God and who lived a Christian way of life and turning them into a communist person that could go back into the world and, and they, they could say, see, we changed this person from being a Christian to a communist. And so there's... Um, uh, a couple of, of uh, priests who uh, lived in America after they were freed from these prison camps. One of them, his name is Father Roman Braga, another one is Father George Casillo. Romanian priests who both were in, uh, at the same time but in different prison cells. Um, Father Roman, for example, was I think 12 years in prison and I forget how many of those years, maybe four or five of those years in solitary confinement. And he was already a monk, and he was a theology professor. And he said, I'm embarrassed to say that it was only in that experience of being in solitary confinement when I had just four walls and nothing else to, to, to have every day that I made the journey inward and discovered a, a, a genuine relationship with God. He said, before that, my God was a God of the books. It was more in the head, more in the mind, more in just the externals. And he said, I wish that this would be sort of standard training for every monk, 
that he would have to go into sort of solitary confinement for a period of time in order to discover the depths that are within. Now, of course, God gave him the grace to withstand that terrible torment. Some didn't make it. Some went crazy. Some took their lives. But, and, and we don't judge, of course, because none of us could say we would be strong enough to endure such a thing. But his witness, maybe God gave him this grace to be a witness to us, that it is in even th these worst of circumstances that one can find not only intimate communion with God, but, but joy unlike any joy. You know, Father George Calcio talks about having the, the liturgy memorized, and so he would, the small one or two ounces of bread they would get as their daily ration, he would use that to pray the liturgy in his cell from memorization. And in one occasion, he talked about how it was the most beautiful liturgy he had ever prayed in his whole life, before and after his imprisonment. And he lived for many years after his imprisonment. And he was a spiritual father to many people. And so this experience of going within is one, again, that is, is, is proven by the experience of, of saints, men and women who have made this journey, even under the most severe um, ex uh, circumstances of suffering. So again, this is, that's why we said the spiritual life has to be lived. It's not something to be solved. We can't just figure it out on paper, but we have, to, we have to make the journey every day. And we learn along the way, God becomes our spiritual guide. Yes, we have our spiritual fathers and our, our confession fathers to, to, to be there with us, but ultimately, ultimately, it is in the life experience itself with a, with a, a genuineness on our part and a purity of intention that God guides us into this depth. Um, there's a have anybody heard the um, the story of the the musk deer the legend of the musk deer I didn't know about this until a few years ago and I found and I found a very beautiful story so um, the you've heard of musk the like the cologne the scent so apparently it comes from the deer um, it's a substance within the deer that is, um, it's like a gland. And uh, this gland, when, it, when they open it, it has a very strong perfume, um, pleasant odor. Um, so it's, it's obtained from the male gland of, of the, 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 what's called the musk deer. So there's a, a legend story. It's very beautiful because it has a nice point to it. It says, one day, many years ago, the musk deer of the mountains sniffed a breath of musk perfume. He leaped from jungle to jungle in pursuit of the musk. The poor animal no longer ate or drank or slept. He didn't know where the scent of the musk came from, but he was impelled to pursue it through ravines, forests, and hills. Finally starving, harassed, exhausted, and wandering about at random, he slipped from the top of a rock and fell mortally wounded. The musk deer's last act before he died was to take pity on himself and lick his breast. And his musk pouch tore when he fell on the rock, and there poured out its perfume. He gasped and tried to breathe in the perfume, but it was too late. Beloved son, the, the author of the story says, don't seek the perfume of God outside of yourself and perish in the jungle of life. Search your soul and look within. He will be there. Right? So this poor musk deer is running after the scent that he gets a glimpse of, a foretaste of. It leads to his death in which he discovers at the last moment that it's all coming from within himself. And this is the spiritual life. Right? 
So what is the relationship between this hiddenness and our, our, our um, life in the world? We all are uh, in the world, in, in our workplaces, our schools, and even in our ministries. Everything is very public. So how do we understand this relationship? Um, there's a professor at uh, St. Vladimir Seminary, his name is Father uh, Peter Butenev. Um, he's author of several uh, books, um, and uh, he, he gave some talks last, I think it was last Lent or the Lent before, and he gave this talk, which I like the title of, and I stole the title of it, it's called Encounter, Engage, Withdraw, and Repeat. Okay, again, Encounter, Engage, Withdraw, and Repeat. And he sees this as sort of the, 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 the mode of Christ's life. And therefore, it is sort of the, the mode by which we should live. We encounter, we engage, we withdraw, and then we repeat. So let's look at this a little bit. When we think about, again, the, that hiddenness of Christ, the 30 years of Nazareth, right? We see that he carries us even into his public ministry. We read, for example, um, in the fourth chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. Right, so we have very early on, the fourth chapter of St. Luke, after the infancy narrative, and now already the Lord is withdrawing. He's engaging, he's healing, He's teaching, he's preaching, and then he withdraws. And the people are trying to hold on to him, saying, now, you're, now you finally came onto the scene of humanity and you're going to escape from us. Right? And so we see this repeated over and over again. Look at the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 1, verses 35 through 37. Again, this is the very first chapter of St. Mark. Now in the morning, having arisen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. Now, interestingly, again, the, the, the spiritual masters, they, they, they are able to not only peer in, into the, the, these experiences of our Lord, but to extract from it what's really important. So, here, um, uh, a Polish priest, his name is Father Thaddeus Dodger. Uh, the spelling is very strange, so um, if, you, if you want it, I can give it to you later. In a, in a book called The Gift of Faith, again, another excellent book I highly recommend by Father Thaddeus Dodger. He says, when we speak of Jesus being besieged continually by the multitudes, we have to say that this was closely related to his praying in solitude. There is an especially important message for you hidden in this. In order for your contact with the people to be fruitful, you have to know beforehand how to leave for seclusion. Now think about what he's saying here. He's saying that the, those who besieged the Lord, who sought after him, he's saying that this was closely related to his praying in solitude. Right? He's not saying that they besieged him so that he didn't go to solitude. He's saying that they besieged him because... He was in solitude. What does he mean by that? He says, we have to see that what the Lord has accomplished in his solitude is that then he comes back into public ministry with power, right? With a word that seasons the world, with the gift from his Father, 
with the mercy of his father. He goes and he, he, he receives Jesus, is, as we're going to see in um, tomorrow night's talk, the third talk. Jesus is a pure receptivity of the father. Everything that he does, everything that he says, everything that he is, is an expression of the life of the father. Right? And so the people are attracted to him. The people are attached to him because he has this hidden, beautiful life of solitude in which he is in communion with the Father. And that's the idea, is that if you want your life to be meaningful outside, you know, in the workplace, at home, at school, in your marriages, in your service at church, if it's going to be something of depth, of substance, you have to have that hidden life. You have to have that withdrawal. You have to have that time, even when Jesus is being besieged by people and he escapes from them. And they say, don't you know that everybody's looking for you? Don't you care? So one of the greatest weaknesses that we as servants can fall into, especially those of us dressed like me, is the busyness of service without the time for our own withdrawal and time alone with God, where we struggle with God, where we fight with God, where we pour our, heart to, our hearts out to God, where we receive something from Him, so that when we go back to the people, we have something to give them that they can't get from the Red Cross, or something that they can't get from, you know, um, some charity. We aren't social workers. Social workers have a very important role to play in the world. All of these organizations are doing tremendous work, but that's not what I'm called to do. I'm called to bring supernatural life to the world. I'm called to bring the grace of God to the world. I'm called to bring the word of God to the world. I'm called to bring the healing power of God to the world. I'm called to be an image of God to the world. This is, these are all supernatural realities, not natural realities. And I don't have that within me unless I take from the source. So, again, we are useless. We are useless unless we have depth in the interior life. Unless we are people who learn how to pray in the secret place, to read in the secret place, to meditate in the secret place, to struggle and suffer in the secret place. One of the other contemporary elders, Father Zachariah Zachary, he says that if you don't have your time with God in that secret place, that your words and your actions will be clumsy when you go to help somebody. It, it, it will lack substance. It will lack sincerity. It, will, it, it, it won't have that sense of purity. Now, another great example, of course, of this life of Christ is, again, St. Pope Rulus VI that we praised this evening. We know that he, again, was a, a great example of this, you know, um, cycle of engaging um, and withdrawing, and, and uh, we see it in so many of the beautiful stories in his life. I'll read to you one of them uh, that's a very touching story. It says that in Alexandria there happened to be a two-year-old child who contracted acute, uh, contracted acute pneumonia. His parents became distressed, especially because he was their only child after eight years of marriage and trying to have children. The doctor didn't give them any hope, and they wept bitterly. His father remembered that St. Pope Carolus VI happened to be there in Alexandria at that time. He was determined to see the saint no matter how late it was. 
The parents took their son and arrived at the Patriarchate in Alexandria very late at night. In spite of their tears, the guard of the Patriarchate, Patriarchate refused to let them in. However, it says, the story says, the Pope, who was at that time in prayer, at that time he was in prayer, knew by the Spirit what was happening outside of the Patriarchate. He called to the guard and said to him, let them in, their son is sick. The daring parents went inside crying, and the saint immediately placed the cross on the spot where the pain was before anyone explained anything to him. He prayed and told them, don't worry, the Lord will bless him. The parents went home with profound peace, and the child's condition immediately began to improve. The next day, they took him to the doctor, and after examining the child, he smiled in astonishment and said, good news, your son had pneumonia, but now there is no trace of it. Now, again, he was in prayer. Right? And so, the question then is, how do we know when that time of solitude should be interrupted and we should go back into the world? Right? Here we have the Pope, it was late at night, it was his personal time, he'd been in service all day, prayers and meeting with the people and, and the liturgical services, and now it was late at night, he was praying and was going to get some rest, and yet the Spirit told him, help these people. So, how do we know... You know, again, of course, we need discernment. There's no, there's no easy answer. We need that discernment to know how much time when I'm withdrawn is not turning into selfishness and a sort of like gluttony, spiritual gluttony. Because we can also do the, the, the opposite, the extreme, right? And say, you know, no, it's my time. It's what we call in modern terms, what, self-care, right? Self-care, everybody needs self-care. Take care of yourself. Right? These are nice expressions, it's true. We do need self-care. But sometimes self-care can be uh, an excuse for just remaining sort of selfish. Right? And here we see the Pope immediately respond to the needs of the people. Jesus goes out into the wilderness, into the deserted place with his disciples to have some needed rest. The throngs of people follow him, and what does he do? He feeds them with the, the, with the five loaves and the two fish. 12,000 people are, are fed. And he intended to leave and go in solitude. His solitude was interrupted. So I think what we can see in the example of the Lord, what we can see in the example of the saints like St. Saint Pope Krulis is that if your reaction when your solitude is interrupted is one of anger and bitterness and resentment, there's, a, there's an element of selfishness there. Right? Because... We see that both in the example of the Lord and, and, and the example of St. Pope Carlos is that they, they didn't resent the people because they interrupted their solitude, but they turned to serve them. Right? So there's an element in which we need to withdraw. We need to go on retreats. We need to come to a place like this and recharge. We need to say no to the people sometimes to, say, to, to be able to say yes to them later. Right? Like one spiritual father said, sometimes you have to not be there for the people so that you can be there for the people. Right? He was speaking to a group of priests and he said this, sometimes you have to not be there for the people in order for you to be there for the people. Again, going back to like Father Zacharias, so that when you go back to the people, you have something of substance to offer them so that you can actually help them. Right? So I think we can test ourselves a little bit. You know, when, how do we react to, to the needs of, of our service, to the needs of our family members, our, our colleagues? Do we always react with a sense of like anger and resentment and bitterness? 
If so, perhaps again that time of solitude, whatever, is tinged with some selfishness. So again, we need great discernment. I don't have the answers. I know I struggle. I personally, I know that oftentimes I think I'm going to have a day where I'm going to do my readings and I'm going to do this, and I get a call, and yes, yeah, sometimes I'm like, ah, right? And then I say, do I answer? Do I let it go to voicemail? And right? I struggle. I, 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 I don't know, maybe you don't, but I do. And so it, it needs, again, that discernment. When do I immediately respond to somebody, jump back into the, the, the public scene, if you will, and when do I preserve that solitude and say, I need, I need this time? That's something for each of us, I think, to discover. But I think, again, we can look at how we react. Right? So when I react with sighing or puffing, huffing and puffing, clear there, for me, I see that as a selfishness within myself. Pope Francis said, without prayer, our acts are empty and not inspired by the Spirit. So again, we have nothing of substance to offer. And again, Father Thaddeus Dodger says, when a Christian as a disciple stops being a person of prayer, he becomes useless to the world. He becomes like tasteless salt, worthy only to be trampled underfoot. So again, encounter, engage, withdraw, and repeat. Now, in this encounter, or in this, sorry, in this um, um, engagement, we are also, in a sense, not just engaging with the world, but we're engaging within ourselves, right? As we said, sort of by, by even the time that we go into seclusion, the solitary life, the, the hidden life, we are engaged in a process of self-knowledge. We are engaged in struggling in our prayer life with God. And some spiritual people would talk about prayer as being a sort of, you know, struggle with God like Jacob, struggled with the angel of God, struggled with God. And it says that because he struggled with God and he overcame, so he was strong with men. Right? So in a sense, there's a, there's a metaphor here for the more we struggle with God in our spiritual life, the more we will be strong with men, meaning with the world. Of course, the Mother of God, we know, as we hear in the Gospel of St. Luke a couple of times, right? she kept all these things in her heart and pondered them, meditated on them, preserved them in her heart in silence. So again, this beautiful example of the interior life. Now, one of the things that we're supposed to discover in this uh, time of solitude is who we are. Who we are in relationship to God, right? Just again... There was never a question for the Lord Jesus Christ who he was. He knew himself to be the Son, the eternal Son, right? And so we could say that the same thing happens the more we enter into that relationship with, with God, we discover who we are as sons and daughters of God Most High. Um, if you've heard of Father Henry Nouwen, a very prolific contemporary author on the spiritual life, he said, how do I deal with my aloneness, right? He says, we all feel alone at times. He says, many people deal with it through loneliness. That means you experience your aloneness as a wound, as something that hurts you, makes you miserable. It makes you cry out, is there anyone who can help me? Loneliness is one of the greatest sources of suffering today. It is the disease of our time. But as Christians, we are called to convert our aloneness and our loneliness into solitude. We are called to experience our aloneness not as a wound, but as a gift. 
as God's gift, so that in our aloneness we might discover how deeply we are loved by God. It is precisely where we are most alone, most unique, most ourselves, that God is closest to us. That is where we experience God as the divine loving Father who knows us better than we know ourselves. So aloneness is what makes me unique. Right? And that's why I'm alone, is that in a sense nobody can know me like God. Nobody can be close to me like God. Nobody can be in relationship with me like God. No matter how beautiful of a marriage you have, no matter how many best friends you have, no matter how many wonderful children you have, all of us sort of go through life with a sense of that aloneness. And some people, he says, convert that aloneness to loneliness, which is a wound, something that makes us suffer. But that aloneness is meant to bring us into a deeper relationship with God in which we discover the gift of childhood, adoption, right? It's one of the most important themes of the New Testament. Each of us is adopted as a son and daughter in Christ, who is the only true son of the Father. And all of us are incorporated in that relationship by being adopted into that relationship. Now, when we discover how to be alone, how to discover the deep heart, how to have our struggle with God, and we learn how to go back and engage in the world, then the possibility for us to combine the two is a sort of the, a beautiful reality that we see in the lives of the saints. Or in Christ himself. Christ, even in the midst of his busyness and his, and his uh, teaching, he is always in communion with the Father. For him, it's never a, 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 you know, a, a time with the people and a time with the Father, but he is, is, as an example of one of the trinities, always in communion with the Father and the Son, or the Spirit. And the same way the saints, like St. Pope Rulus and many other saints, they teach us how that even when they're in the public, even when they're in their external activities and service, they are in a state of communion with God. Their heart is praying. There, there's a sort of quiet dialogue that's always taking place. There's a, a beautiful Polish nun, her name is St. Faustina, I think Abuna has quoted to her to you before. Um, she wrote a beautiful diary. Now, the interesting thing about St. Faustina is if you were just to read her life, her diary, you would, you would see like a very great saint, like a very holy person who encountered Jesus in a very direct, personal way. He spoke to her. He, she wrote down things he said. But if you were to ask the nuns who lived with her, they, they, we had no idea. She was a nun like the rest of us. We knew that she... You know, she was a good nun, she was quiet, she prayed a lot, but we had no idea the depth of her relationship with God. Which shows that even someone like Faustina was able to be with people, to do all her duties, and to be with the community, and yet there was something happening within her. Right? So she tells a story in her diary of a time that she was told to go back home because they thought her mom was dying. And, you know, for, for, especially traditionally, monks and nuns never left the monastery, even if there was, a, you know, unless there was something like a, a family member, a parent who was dying. So she went home to visit her dying mother, and, um, and she, this is from her diary. So she writes, the days at home passed in a lot of company, as everybody wanted to see me and talk with me. Often I could count as many as 25 people every day. 
They listened with great interest to my accounts of the lives of the saints. It seemed to me that our house was truly the house of God, as each evening we talked about nothing but God. When tired from these talks and yearning for solitude and silence, I quietly slipped out into the garden in the evening so I could converse with God alone. Even in this, I was unsuccessful. Right again, so she tries to slip away and they keep dragging her back in. Then she says, immediately my brothers and sisters came and took me into the house. And once again, I had to talk with all of those eyes fixed on me. But I struck on one way of getting some respite. I asked my brothers to sing for me, and as much as they had lovely voices. And besides, one played the violin and another the mandolin. And during this time, I was able to devote myself to interior prayer without shunning their company. Right? So she sort of finds a way to spend time with God by telling them, you know, play this song, sing this song. And she does that while they're doing that. She's with them, she's present to them, and yet she's praying within herself. It's sort of a sort of a, a, a nice little story that shows how how much the saints desire to remain always in converse with God, to always remain in that state of dialogue, and that's that's the the, the, the beautiful marriage that takes place when we learn to live that hidden life, when we learn to enjoy solitude and go to discover, the, the, again, that journey within. And then when we go back into the world, not only are we more effective in the world, but we're able to carry that experience of being with God in solitude, even in the midst of noise. Um, Elder Porphyrius, are you familiar with Elder Porphyrius, the book Wounded by Love? So a lot of people don't know that Elder Porphyrius, for many, many years, because of his health, he was uh, actually living in um, a chapel called the Athens Polyclinic. There, so actually, if, uh, when I went to Athens some years ago, I drove by it. It was like in the midst of like downtown, like it's not, not even like anywhere near solitude. Very loud, noisy city center. And there's this, there's this like a hospital or like a clinic. And at the bottom of it is like a chapel. And for, I don't know how many dozens of years, where he was a living saint, he was the, the priest of that chapel in the midst of a very loud um, city. And when he first was there, um, and he tried to pray the liturgy, he found out that across the street, there was a, a man who owned a, a music store, like selling albums, for, you know, the old LPs. And he was blasting music um, on the speakers. So he, he thought, I can't pray. The music is blasted across the street. So he went and he tried to talk to the, to the music owner. I said, look, this is my, my bread and butter. Like, you know, if I don't do this, I don't attract customers. If I don't attract customers, I go out of business. Tough luck, Padre, you know. And um, so he was very sad. And he thought, okay, maybe I should leave. Maybe I should, you know, tell the bishop I can't stay here. And then he was inspired in prayer. Of course, he had a very close relationship with God. He had a great uh, gift of clairvoyance. And he, was, he received very clearly a message from God that said, basically, stay where you are. And when you learn to pray, not louder, but more intensely within, you will see that you will drown out the, the exterior noise. And that's what he did. He, started, he began praying the liturgy more focused, more intensely, more spiritually, and he was he, as, as if the, the music completely disappeared. He, didn't, he was completely unaffected by it. But it was still there. Right? 
So again, what he went in within himself, he found a deeper way of praying, of communing with God, and he was able to overcome the noise of the world, the distractions of the world. So it's not even a matter of where you are. Right? It's not about saying, well, if I lived in the desert, yeah, maybe in the beginning this is a, 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 an aid to us, which is why we, we, we need to go train ourselves by going to the monasteries and retreat houses and so on. But eventually, we learn again how to bring that solitude in even to the world. I know I'm going late, so let me just try to wrap up. Um, when we live this solitude, when we discover this hidden life, when we enter into the heart, everything becomes new. Right? Nothing becomes routine anymore. Right? And that's the beautiful thing of, of Christ. Right? If anyone is in Christ, he is a, what, a new creation. And in the book of Revelation, the Lord says, See, I am making all things new. And one of the, 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 the very sort of frustrating things that we, 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 we sometimes experience is this sort of monotony of life. Right? We say, what's new? Everything is the same. My work, my family life, my church service, everything's the same. Like, where is the excitement? Where is the newness? But when we live the interior life, when we learn to discover, like Father Roman and Father George Calcio, you know, then what, new, what newness did they have in the four walls of a cell for years? The newness takes place inside. What happens on the inside is that everything becomes new. Right? Not my outward circumstances, but my inward attitudes. My inward views, my inward faith, my inward hope, my inward love becomes renewed day by day with the very same circumstances like Elder Porphyrius. Right? So newness doesn't mean novelty. That's the, that's, that's the important thing. Newness does not mean novelty. Newness is what Christ brings about from our interior dispositions that changes how we look, how we view, how we live with the very same circumstances every day. That's why, again, the monastic life can be so beautiful. Because that monotony is not a barrier to growth, but it is the, the means by which it forces them, again, to make that inward journey. So you never hear the saints say, oh, just the same old stuff. For a true saint, every day is new. Every opportunity to do the very same things that they do routinely every day is something new because I can approach it with, or if you've heard of St. Therese of Lisieux, uh, she's also a Carmelite, uh, sometimes called the little flower. You know, she, uh, Mother Teresa took a lot of her spirituality from St. Therese. And both of them would say the same thing in different ways. You do little things with great love. Right? So St. Therese would say, if you pick up a pin from the ground that has fallen with great love, this is something very great in, in God's eyes. And what she means by that is that the act is not what's important. The circumstances, what's happening around me is not what's important. It's what's happening inside me. And if I can do the very same things like washing dishes, washing my car, taking the kids to school, you know, doing the routine things that I do, but if I can do them with a different attitude with greater prayer, with greater love, with greater opportunity to be in communion with God, right? then it's new. It's new because I'm new. 
And that's, again, the lives of the saints. It's not about doing great things. They never sought out to do great things. Sometimes God gave them the calling to do great things. But most of them just lived by doing little things with great love, with great faith, with great hope. That's why Jesus says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. And he even talks about the, the gift that is not taken away for just giving a child a cup of cold water. C.S. Lewis, the great uh, apologist, says, Infidelity in the spiritual life sets in when we suffer what he calls the horror of the same old things. So when we give in to this idea of oh, the same old thing, the same old thing, that's when our spiritual life becomes lukewarm. Because we're looking for something novel. You know, I need a new priest. I need a new liturgy. I need a new monastery. I need a new something. You know, or even sometimes running after a new book all the time. Looking for novelty. I need newness, when, but that newness I'm looking for is all outside of myself. And instead, the, 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 the realm of endless possibilities of newness is within me. I may end with just a quote by Father Jacques Philippe. Um, he says, Our freedom always has this marvelous power to make what is taken from us by life events or other people into something offered. So our freedom gives us the possibility of making something that wasn't initially my choice, I make it my choice. He says, externally there is no visible difference, but internally everything is transfigured. Fate into free choice, constraint into love, loss into fruitfulness, Human freedom is of absolutely unheard of greatness. It does not confer the power to change everything, but it does empower us to give meaning to everything, even meaningless things. And that is much better. Our lives no longer have in them anything negative, ordinary or indifferent. Positive things become a reason for gratitude and joy. Negative things an opportunity for abandonment, faith and offering. Everything becomes a grace. Everything becomes a grace. Every moment, whatever it brings, is filled with God's presence. We do not commune with God in the past or in the future, but we, by welcoming every and each instant as the place where He gives Himself to us. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Are we doing questions now? Okay. No, it's fine. Okay, the first question is, I feel like my relationship with my cell phone makes me very oriented to the outside and not inside. How can I change that? I'm really struggling to reduce my screen time. Well, I think you sort of answered your own question, right? It's to struggle to reduce our screen time. I mean, I think, you know, we begin by just having the discipline of, um, and again, if we think about the monastic life, right? The monastic life has um, a structure. Right? It's not left to, of course, until a monk reaches the, the possibility of, let's say, a life of total solitude and like an anchorite who wanders in the desert or the sawah and so on. Um, but for many, many years and sometimes for, for most of the monks and nuns, their whole lifetime, it's the structure. Right? It's waking up at the same time, eating at the same time, praying at the same time, right? with some variable. Right? And I think the most important thing for us is to have a routine. Right? But the routine does not need to be um, 
how do I say, um, without the freedom to discover, again, that, that sense of newness within the time that we spend with God. So personally, this is just my, my personal advice to people when, when, when they're trying to, let's say, have a, a rule of prayer, like a time every day where they pray. For me, I start by trying for, for myself and for those that I guide to insist on dedicating some time for God. Okay, so let's say it's 15 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day, an hour a day, divided between two, three times, or if, if you only have one chunk of time. Right? And the first thing is to be faithful to that time no matter what, even if you just sit doing nothing. Because right? what happens is that if we start with the rule of prayer as being do five psalms, do the litanies, right? And then when we, when we have those days where we're, we're tired, we're frustrated, we're, we're distracted, and we say, well, if I can't do these things, then it's a waste. So I'll try again tomorrow. So my preference is, is that you dedicate some time every day as like, this is my time with the Lord. And in the beginning, use your freedom to enjoy that time however you like. Okay? So you have the Psalms, you have your Agbeya there, you have the Gospels, you can meditate on the Gospels, you can take a spiritual book and meditate on the spiritual book, you can say the Jesus Prayer, you can sit in silence, you can say, Lord, I love you, over and over again. Whatever, fill that time with whatever you can do, and whatever you can't do, just sit in silence. And once you establish that this is sort of time that is, you don't have to feel guilty that in your mind it's unproductive. This is one of the things that I think Ruth Burroughs, Sister Ruth Burroughs that I mentioned, is brilliant about. There is never prayer time that is fruitless because it's not in my hands, it's in God's hands. God will always bring about something from my time of prayer with Him. Even if I think it was wasted time, even if I think I didn't pray well, even if I think I was distracted, but for God, He can always bring something out of the time that I spend with Him. Right? Think about the disciples. A lot of times, Jesus said, just, just come with me to a deserted place. Just let me, let me give you. I'm not asking anything from you. I'm not, you don't need to entertain me. You don't need to prove yourself to me. But let me give you. Right? And so this goes back to what we're going to talk a bit more about tomorrow. Is like we, Spiritual life is about being a receptivity a capacity to receive from God. And sometimes just sitting in quiet and saying, Lord, here I am. There's a beautiful story Father Zacharias tells about um, a friend of his uh, who was a monk in, Athens, in Greece who was asked to go and um, cover in a church in Athens for a priest who was sick or traveling or something. And this monk wasn't used to all of the, uh, the crowds of people that like a large parish in Athens would, would serve on a typical Sunday. So he went and he prayed the liturgy and people asked for confession and keep, people came with their problems and he had this really exhausting day. So he goes back to his, his cell in the monastery at night and he looks at his icons and he has, he's a monk, he has a prayer rule. And he looks at his icons and he says, Lord, forgive me, I'm dead, I can't pray tonight. And he just paces back and forth looking at his icon and saying, Lord, forgive me, I'm dead. I cannot pray tonight. But what is he doing? He's praying. He's praying genuinely. He's praying with vulnerability. He's praying from the heart. He's saying, Lord, I, I wish I could pray. I wish I could say something that is worth your time. 
but I'm dead. Right? And then he said that as he was praying these words, that his heart opened, or we could say, like we said earlier, his heart was activated, and he said it was the most beautiful night he spent in prayer. Right? So don't ever give up on that time with God, no matter how useless you think it is. Just give it to Him. Even if day after day all you do is sit quietly and say, Lord, forgive me, I'm dead, I'm dead, I cannot pray today. Once you establish that time, you won't want to leave that time. You want to go back to that time. Even if it's just sitting in silence. And that, that then will, will produce, I think, in us the fruit of how to, again, re-engage in the world. How to put things in their proper place. How to order things in their proper place, like the technology, like you know, the TV, all of these things that we um, have to manage in our life. The next question is, do you recommend Abuna when we withdraw that we pray the Igbay or just have the heart focused on God or do you recommend a combination of both? I personally like to do both. So again, I would say that maybe we could talk a little bit about this more in the next couple of days. There's, th there's three primary ways that we can think of prayer. Recitative prayer, which is praying like the Psalms, the other prayers in the Igbaya, the prayers from the saints. We're reciting words that are in, in a text. And this tends to be a little bit more formal. Sometimes we, we stand, we make the sign of the cross, we make prostrations, and so on. And then there's prayer, which is more of a meditative form of prayer, where we take a text like the Gospels or a spiritual book, and we engage in, in what would some in the, in the tradition would call like Lexio Divina, which is sacred reading, which means basically I take a, the Gospels like the story of Zacchaeus, I read it, and I start to pray with it. Lord, as you entered into the houses of Zacchaeus, I need you. I need you to enter into the house of my heart. Uh, there's all kinds of filth in my heart that need to be cleansed. Come inside of me. Right? And then I read a little bit more and I pray. And I read, right? So the image that I gave in my book is like that of a bird which goes into the water to fill its beak and then lifts its head up for the water to go down its throat and repeats, right? So that's sort of spiritual reading is, is sort of in, reading a text, engaging with it in prayer. And this is prayer. And then the third form of prayer would be more silent prayer, sometimes called contemplative prayer, where we can maybe start with the Jesus prayer, where we're trying to quiet our thoughts and our mind from all the distractions, and maybe just saying, Lord Jesus, have mercy. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. To, to a kind of silence. Just, Lord, here I am. Just fill me with your love, with your presence. Just be with me. You know, and, and it's sort of like what we experience when we watch a sunset. Right? It's not a time for like, oh my God, you just, shh, watch it. Just take it in, right? Or if you go on the ocean, deep sea fishing, sometimes you get just caught in the endlessness of the ocean. It's sort of just being in God's presence in that sense of wonder and love. It's two people who love each other so much that they don't need to talk to each other, they just need to be next to each other. Right? All of that is prayer. Right? And so learn to pray in all of those forms because they're all necessary. The Psalms teach us from the Word of God Himself, right? I mean, the Psalms are the Word of God, so that it's God's language to us of how to pray. So we learn the dispositions of prayer. We learn what to pray for. But the other forms of prayer are very important as well. 
How can we live a life of solitude at work if I'm constantly required to be speaking to people and it seems like I don't have a single minute of quiet to myself? So again, they think about like the examples of Pokrulos and Elder Porfirios and, and so on is you can love the person. You know, sometimes what I do, for example, even when I'm giving communion, right? Because, I mean, again, I'm confessing to you that with three, sometimes two, three hundred people, you can start to get distracted. You know, the blood of Emmanuel our God, the blood of Emmanuel our God, the blood of Emmanuel. And so sometimes I have to stop myself and say, pray for each person. Lord Jesus, bless this person, if I can remember their name. Bless them today. Guide them. Right? And so I'm doing something and I'm saying something, but my heart is trying to do something also that is more activated. Right? So we can, we can try to love the people and pray for them that we're with. We can, as you said, when we have a moment, we can just say the Jesus prayer. We can have a prayer rope which just reminds us, you know, to even say, have you ever heard of uh, Padre Pio? The great Italian saint uh, from the 19, he died in the late 1960s. Very much like the Western version of Pope Krulos in many ways. Um, and his brother monks would say that they just heard him all day walking and saying in Italian, Jesu Maria, Jesu Maria, just Jesus Mary, Jesus Mary. Sort of like us saying the Jesus prayer and then hail to you, you know, O Virgin, the true, just like, but just it reduced it down even to the words, just Jesus Mary. And his heart is saying the rest. Right? His heart is saying the rest. So we can, again, through our actions towards people, through what we say in our heart, to pray for them, through the moments that we have in solitude, to just even for a moment to withdraw for a second and lift our heart to God, we can learn how to have more um, uh, practice of, of prayer in the midst of, of the activity of the world. And God is going to help us. When he sees that that's what we want, when he sees that what you want is to be in communion with him, even in the midst of your busyness, he's going to grant that to you. Little by little, he's going to help you to experience that communion with him. How can you sit with yourself when you're attacked constantly by intrusive thoughts? Well, this is, um, I think this is where reading can be helpful. So maybe, maybe if this is something that you're struggling with at a certain time, maybe that that's a time where you can do more meditative prayer. Try to engage in a text. Read something from the Gospels and try to pray with it. Um, basically, I, I think what, what, there's two options with thoughts. Any thoughts the Desert Fathers tell us is to ignore them or replace them. Right? So if, you know, one spiritual father, he said, uh, treat them like sort of annoying puppy dogs that just keep jumping on to try to get you to pet them. You know, but you're, in a, you're engaged in a very important conversation. And these puppy dogs are just like, you know, trying to get you to turn your attention away from this very important person and to pet them. So, so you just, shoo, 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 go away, go away. Like, don't give it much importance. Don't, don't be shocked. Oh my God, what are these thoughts? Where are they coming from? Why am I thinking this? Just ignore it. If you can't ignore it, then you replace it. So you replace it with the Jesus prayer. You replace it with a verse from the Gospels or from the Psalms, right? The Desert Fathers often used like uh, verses from the Psalms to, to repeat. And sometimes it, that's, you know, we struggle, right? I mean, that's part of the struggle is that we, we, we have to live with those intrusive thoughts. We have to live with those distractions. But again, it doesn't mean that we're not praying. Because behind all of those intrusive thoughts and those, is what, what's behind it is your desire to pray, right? St. Augustine, he says, he says, the desire to love is already love. So can you apply that to everything else? The desire to pray is prayer. 
Lord, I want to be with you. Lord, I want to pray. Lord, I want to spend time with you. He's very happy that you're saying that you have that desire. And so even behind all of those distractions and all of those intrusive thoughts, he sees the, the, the desire. As one spiritual father said, he says, God has ears to hear what your heart is saying. So even when your mind is distracted and full of all kinds of noise, but your heart is saying, Lord, I, I need you. I want you. That's what he hears. So give him more credit to know how to like, get underneath the layers of our psychology and our, the ugliness of our, our fallen human nature to the, get to the true desire of our heart. And that's what you need to cultivate, is that true desire. What are the practical ways that we can retreat from our external circumstances into the heart, like into a place where we can't be disturbed by what's going on externally? I mean, I think, I think we've kind of covered it. I don't know, is there something more to say about that? Uh, you want to look at the... Oh, there's more, okay. He just revealed like five more questions. Um, if you want, we can save some of them for later. Let me just see if there's one that's like, how can we turn, how can one turn their loneliness into solitude and not feel empty, sad, woe is me mood? I think again, uh, primarily through when we read the scriptures, when we pray, what is it that we're going to receive in that experience? We're going, to, we're going to receive the word of God, which is going to tell us, I love you, right? This is, when, when we think about um, the verse uh, from 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us, right? So everything that is revealed by God in the scriptures, in theology, in doctrine, in dogmas, is under the banner, I love you. Right? And everything that has to do with our spirituality, our response to God, our ethics, our morality, our worship, is under the banner of that I might love you. Right? It's very simple. Right? So when, when I read the scriptures, when I meditate on a spiritual book, what I should be receiving is the, is, is the, 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 the highlighted message. God is love. He loves me, right? I'm a child of God, right? And sometimes it can be helpful to, um, in your notebook, to go through all of those beautiful verses, right? Like Isaiah and, you know, if a nursing mother were to forget her nursing child, I will never forget you. All those beautiful verses in which, you know, Jeremiah about being known from all eternity before the, being in the womb of our mother and, you know, um, the, the Lord in the Sermon on the Mount, by the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. Put those verses in a notebook and meditate on them. Don't leave them until you, until you allow yourself to believe them. And so the greatest gift that we have is our, is our adoption, is our sonship in Christ. And that's the source of our joy. That's something that the devil cannot take away from us. Usually when we're sad, it's because we're focused on our sins and we're focused on our lack of perfection, it's sort of a wounded pride that's, that's making us sad. Father Zechariah says, he says, we know the monks in the monastery who repented properly are the ones who are joyful in the morning. The ones who are walking around sad all day, he says they didn't repent properly. He's talking about monks. 
right? Because what happens is that the, the monks who repent properly are the ones who they, they, they acknowledge that they are sinner, sinners. They acknowledge that they have a filthy human nature. Right? And they turn to God and say, Lord, what, what do you expect from dust of the earth? Have mercy on me. And they receive God's forgiveness. They receive His mercy. And they're happy. But when we cling to our inability to be perfect, when we cling to like, no, I demand that I overcome this sin. Why am I still falling into this sin? Right? That's my wounded ego. That's my wounded pride. And it makes me sad. It drags me down. And so our joy is not in our immediate perfection. Our joy is in what is already given to us that can't be taken away, which is our adoption, our, our relationship with God, which is a relationship of sonship. That's the source of our joy. And the devil, he can't take that away. He can tempt us into sin, but he can't take away that adoption. Right? Nothing that you do, as we heard in the parable of the prodigal son, I mean, this is the, this is the, the, the quintessential story in which God relates to us who he is and who we are. The Lord Jesus chose very specifically made-up words of a made-up story to tell you what God is like and to tell you who you are to Him. You cannot lose your sonship no matter how much you deny Him, no matter how much you throw it back in His face. You are always a son, a daughter in His house. That's what we receive in prayer. Right? One of the spiritual fathers he says, he says, the greatest enlightenment that we receive in prayer is the knowledge of our Father. That's why some of the saints, they, they pray, they say, our Father, and they stop. They can't continue. Right? The enlightenment that we receive in prayer is not an enlightenment of like some sublime dogmatic uh, formulas. It's the greater knowledge of God as our Father and our sonship to Him. So, if we are entering into the scriptures, entering into prayer, we will come to know and experience this sonship. And that will be the source of our, our joy and our peace. And the devil won't be able to take it away. Sin won't be able to take it away. I feel like every time I answer a question, five more pop-ups. So I don't know if we stop at this point, and then we'll... Thank you very much. Glory be to God forever. May absolve me, Abuna. Forgive me.